Hello, 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 humans. It's me, Ellie Krug, with Ellie 2.0 Radio, with another Ellie 2.0 Radio show. I am thrilled to be here, thrilled to be talking to you. Um, not so thrilled about the weather in Minnesota, which I always talk about in the beginning of the show. I don't know if we will ever get out of having 50-degree days, but, you know, whatever. Uh, we have a good show. Um, the big interview is with Julia Gay, who is with the Coalition of Asian American Leaders, who's going to talk about this being Asian American Pacific Islander Month, uh, Heritage Month, and we'll talk about what it's like to be Asian in America right at the moment. She's got some other things that she's involved in. Among other things, she's a comedian. And um, so you're going to enjoy that uh, interview. In my C block, I'm going to talk about my work as usual, but Let's begin with the A block, and I'm going to deviate from my usual practice of highlighting a particular idealist. I don't want to do that very often, but I'm going to do it this weekend. I'm going to do it today because um, I need to talk about something that's on the horizon, which has the potential to really derail the progress America has made and is making since George Floyd's murder. First, a bit of background. Yesterday, um, which was Thursday, so on Saturday, you're going to have it two days ago, I trained the city council of Carlsbad, California. It's a city of 100,000 on the coast just north of San Diego. From pictures, it looks like a beautiful city. But it was an unusual training in that it had to be conducted in the form of a public meeting. So that meant anyone could tune in to the Zoom meeting um, and watch as I was conducting the training. Um, and frankly, I have no idea how many people tuned in. I mean, it started at 8 o'clock uh, Pacific time. But it was a bit weird to know that people were watching something like a TV show that I was the center of, along with the city council. I tell you this because given that the training was in the form of a public meeting, the event had to actually begin first with the uh, Pledge of Allegiance and then with an opportunity for public comment, something that citizens of Carlsbad could call in. They were limited to three minutes. Actually, on the Zoom, you saw, you saw a box, a pixel box with um, the, uh, you know, a timer um, and uh, – so people could call in. They, they were going to limit it to, I think, five people or three people, three minutes each or something like that. But only two people called in. Uh, one person called in to comment about uh, some problems with the senior center, and this, you know, which was, you know, this is what America is all about. And then the second comment, though, was from a citizen um, reading from a script, it appeared, um, objecting to the training that I was about to undertake. The caller objected to it, saying that the training represented critical race theory. Now, I want you to remember that phrase, critical race theory. You'll see sometimes the acronym CRT, which is becoming a huge rallying cry of conservative media and conservative figures. The caller went on to say that I would be teaching Marxist theory to the city council and quoted a conservative writer at the Three-minute mark, the caller was cut off, and right after that, I started the training. And I'm happy to report I think the training went well. This morning, though, I woke up to see a New York Post story. The Post, by the way, is owned um, by Rupert Murdoch or his, his Murdoch empire. So the 
Post is a conservative New York um, tabloid. Uh, that would be my phrase for it. Um, and uh, in the Post, uh, New York Post this morning was a piece titled, quote, What Critical Race Theory is All About by a man named Christopher Rufo. And in fact, at the top of the article on the New York Post on this online was is a bust of, of Karl Marx. And here is how the article begins. Quote, critical race theory is fast becoming America's new institutional orthodoxy. Yet most Americans have never heard of it. And of those who have, many don't understand it. This must change. We need to know what it is so we can get so we can know how to fight it. To explain critical race theory, it helps to begin with a brief history of Marxism. And then Christopher Rufo goes on with a what I would describe as a tortured argument about how Marxism failed to get the world to rise up along the lines of work, workers versus capitalism. Clearly uh, given the world that we live in, capitalism has prevailed. But Roth then ar- he argues that rather than die and go away, Marxism has shifted. No longer is it an ideology that rails against capitalism, but instead it's operating in disguise as, quote, identity-based Marxism. In other words, if you talk about skin color disparities in America— you are really pushing forward Marxist ideals aimed at undermining America. As the argument goes, teaching about equity or social justice or diversity and inclusion is just a facade. The goal is to take private property away from everyone. As Roth writes, hold on, I got to get to that quote. Um, An equity-based form of government would mean the end not only of private property, but also of individual rights, equality under the law, federalism, and freedom of speech. These would be replaced by race-based redistribution of wealth, group-based rights, active discrimination, and omnipotent bureaucratic authority, unquote. That is what he is telling Americans reading this article that this work about trying to change America, to get it to move away from where white skin color is the preferred dominant color by people in power to something more equitable, he is saying that, nope, that really is communism, Marxism at work. Um, He goes on to argue that the efforts to stop critical race theory have been ineffective because people are afraid of sharing their conservative beliefs for fear of being labeled anti-racist. And he goes down the list of horrible things that will happen, like the schools, like schools are teaching that white colored people are, you know, the oppressors of all people. Me, Ellie Krug, I'm here to report that none of this is true. In fact, there is no such thing as critical race theory. There isn't. You're not going to go to a book that says, here's how critical, what critical race theory consists of and how to teach it. No, the right, the conservative media, has coined the phrase critical race theory as a way to attack efforts to change America. 
It is another, and I know um, (laughs) it is another rallying cry, another way to rally the base, just like it is about transgender people, particularly in sports. It is. Um, So I'm sorry, but I'm feeling like I'm getting, you know, the double whammy here. The work that I'm doing around diversity and inclusion is aimed at addressing why people in power favor white color skin all over other skin colors. Yeah, I mean, the, the truth is that people in power, who are mainly white color, favor white color skin. They do. And they're darn scared about people of other skin colors getting power. And that, you know, I mean, look at the voter suppression bills, all the laws that have been going across America right now. That is aimed at keeping down people who are not white in skin color from voting and then from voting in people that look like them, that have values that are more egalitarian. Um, And it's all about why, you know, people of color are arrested and incarcerated at higher rates than whites. It's about ending the glaring disparity of how nearly two-thirds of white color third graders read at or above their reading level, while barely one-third of children of color read at third-grade levels. I mean, that's nothing about Marxism. That's just simply about the system is not working for people who aren't white. That's what it's about. We're just trying to get the system to work the way it's supposed to for everyone. No one's special. And I'm also here to tell you, I'm not here to take, you know, my work around diversity and inclusion, I'm not here to take your property. I'm not trying to do that. Um, But I will tell you this, that this attack on diversity and inclusion, on that work, on the work that I do, on trying to fix a country based on 246 years of, of slavery and another nearly 100 years of Jim Crow, I will tell you the attack on that work right now like this article by Christopher Rufo, is a grave risk. I am certain that we will hear more about this, about how teaching anything around about America's past and current racial injustices, and I am positive we're going to start hearing more that it's anti-American. And that clarion call will become louder and louder from the right. Indeed, I see this, and I know, I don't want to be alarmist, but I see this as a mainline vehicle to actually violence against people doing the work that I'm doing, against institutions that are working to try and change the way our country has been historically. Certainly, it's going to have a hugely chilling effect. I'm certain that businesses and governmental entities will become gun-shy about letting people like me come in and train their teams. Okay. Stay tuned on this attack on diversity and inclusion. I am very, very concerned. And I will be back at some point to talk with you about it further. Thank you. Okay, when we come back from the big break, we're going to talk with Julia Gay from the Coalition of Asian American Leaders, and then you'll come to my C-Block. Thanks.
And we're back on AM 950 LE 2.0 Radio. Okay, so remember, next time you hear the phrase critical race theory, you know you are heading down a rabbit hole with someone. Please remember that. Okay, this is now the time for the, the big interview on this week's show, and I am thrilled to have with me on the line Julia Gay. Let me give you a little bit of a short bio for you. Uh, for her. So Julia is an, she is an artist and community organizer committed to uplifting the intersection of justice, healing, and the arts. I just love that about her bio. She is uh, the communications and marketing coordinator for the Coalition of Asian American Leaders. That's Cal, C-A-A-L. And then outside the office, she's a dancer. Um, she is also a comedian. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she is involved with the steering committee of an organization uh, named Network of Politicized Adoptees, which I want to talk with her about as well, given that I'm an adoptive parent. Um, she also uh, launched uh, a one-woman show, Motherland, in October of 2019, uh, exploring her personal narrative as a Chinese adoptee. Julia, are you on the line there? I am. Hey, welcome Welcome to LE 2.0 Radio. I am thrilled to have you here. Um, I only met you earlier this week, but as soon as I met you, I'm like, I need to get to know her. And I'm really thrilled uh, that you agreed to be on the show. So why don't we begin with this, okay? Um, it is um, this month, May, is Asian American um, Island Pacific, Islander Pacific, Island Pacific, Islander Pacific, sorry, um, Heritage Month, and, uh, and, and you're involved with CAL, and can you talk to us what the Coalition of Asian American Leaders is all about? Sure. Um, so CAL is really this um, network of Asian Minnesotans, um, leaders in our community, who uh, got together a few years ago, realizing that there uh, was a need for an Asian space for leaders to come together and activate change. Um, before that, I feel like we were all kind of doing our work in our separate silos, and so Cal really creates a place for us to come together, and um, we, we have leaders from all different sectors um, and all over Minnesota, and we do everything from supporting leaders in the community to um, doing policy and activist work um, at the at the Capitol. So that's a little bit about what we're doing. Okay. Well, thank you. And so tell me, how are you doing? That's the question I've got in light of what is going on in America right now toward Asian people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it has been a heavy, heavy time. Um, and I feel... It's been especially heightened being in a role um, with Cal, uh, and so it feels like we have been in almost constant crisis and rapid response mode for the past um, month and a half um, or more, and, and really since the start of the pandemic, um, really trying to, you know, take care of our community members who are really suffering in a lot of different ways right now. Um, and personally, I... Yeah, it's been very exhausting. Um, it started to feel like a few weeks ago. I, I felt like my job was to wake up and think about 
Cal's next statement in response to, you know, the next mass shooting, and, and we were seeing something horrible in the news, like, every day or every other yep. day. Yep. So, um, I'm, you know, I'm grateful that I've been able to still take some time for myself, but also we we <clears throat> are all pretty tired, like Cal, uh, and been working really hard these past few months. Well, so my heart goes out to you, and I'm so darn sorry uh, about what is happening in America. You know, you're. I mean, it, it seems like you're right. Almost every day there's some incident with somebody of Asian heritage being marginalized, being hurt or harmed or killed um, just because of who they are. And, you know, I, I mean, I know that um, marginalization of Asian people has always been out there, but it has really, am I right? It has really uptaked um, in, the, in the, the last year since the president, former president, excuse me, uh, started calling it the China virus. Yes, yeah, and it's, it's, that had serious consequences for our communities. Um, and unfortunately, I, I think not all of these incidences are of Asian hate are reported or um, right. definitely covered news. And so there's this misunderstanding that, like, there's just a few things. But really, if, if you look at it, I, I think we're seeing hate incidents happening daily at this point to, unfortunately, some of our most vulnerable community members, you know, like our elders, um, lots of women, some children, um, yep. and, and we've seen this, you know, all over the country, but even here in Minnesota. So that's, like, very con- concerning to, to me and to Cal, um, and, and we're, doing some, we're doing some work to try to track these stats. Um, we've worked with the Minnesota Department of Health to uh, create a helpline that people can call um, when they experience discrimination and, and start getting the numbers and tracking these incidents. Okay, and, and is, that, is that up and running, uh, the, the hotline, the reporting line? Yes, it is. And, and how can somebody get a hold of that if they need to? Sure. Um, let me pull up the number. Um, here, why don't I, I can tell you that in a minute. I have to pull up the, the phone number. Okay, well, oh. that, yeah, no, no, that's fine. So um, uh, the second question I have is, is, is the atmosphere a little bit better in the Twin Cities uh, compared to like New York or Philadelphia or Los Angeles? I would say that there's definitely more media in those other cities um, covering it, but we are dealing with um, different incidents here in our own communities, and um, some of them are more public than others, and it, it varies between, um, you know, microaggressions to more, you know, very concerning violent acts that have happened. Right. So, right. yeah, so it, it definitely is something where we want to respect, you know, the privacy of those individuals, but we're really also supporting those of our community members who want to, you know, step up and speak out about what has happened to them. Um, and actually, we hosted a, a pretty big event uh, a few weeks ago where we brought in some community members who shared their experiences with anti-Asian hate, and we had nearly, we had over a thousand people attend. So oh my gosh. That was really Wow. Mm-hmm. Is that on, is that online somewhere where that uh, folks can go to it and see it? 
Yes, that is on our um, on our YouTube page. So if you look up the Coalition of Asian American Leaders, it'll be it's called Unheard uh, Unheard Voices. Okay. Stories of anti-Asian racism. Yeah. Okay, great. Julia, we've got to take a break. And when we come back, uh, maybe you can give us that number for the hotline. But I also want to talk with you about your experience as an adoptee and, and uh, the, uh, the, the uh, network, uh, that, um, network of politicized adoptees, okay? Okay, sounds good. Okay, everyone, we've been speaking to uh, Julia Gay um, from the Coalition of Asian American Leaders. When we come back, we'll talk with her a little bit more. You're listening to me, Eli Krug, on Eli 2.0 Radio on AM 950. Thanks. Ellie 2.0 Radio on AM 950. Uh, before we took our break, we were speaking to Julia Gay, who was here to talk about um, Asian American Pacific Islander Month, uh, Heritage Month, as well as uh, uh, her role at the at Cal, the Communications, excuse me, the Coalition of Asian American Leaders. Everyone, this is not my day. I am tripping over words, and I'm not doing very good. And I'll tell you, it's been a heck of a week. So I'll share about that in the next next block. Julia, you're you're on the line again, and I'm <laughs> sorry about tripping over things today. Um, I'm usually well. I'm never a hundred percent, but I'm usually better than this. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, no worries. That's all right. Um, you know, before we, we get off of Cal and your role there, you know, you're the communications and marketing coordinator for them. You know, tell me, how is, you know, AAPI month different this year, Heritage Month? How is it different this year than in past years? Yeah, it feels especially important to take this month to focus on Asian issues. Um, at Cal, I'm really happy to be overseeing our mini Asian stories project where we highlight basically a story from community members um, every day of the month. Um, and, and that you can find on our website or follow us on social media. Um, and we're, we are so happy to have um, some really incredible stories to share. Um, and we also are including some artistic um, and creative reflections in there as well. Um, and I am also sharing a poem in there as well. So okay. uh, stay tuned for that, definitely. Give us, um, uh, give us the yeah. Cal website, would you please, so people oh, can yes. uh, go it's, to it. Yeah, so you can just go to www.calmn.org, and then you can go to slash mini Asian stories, that's M-I-N-N-E, Asian stories. So, um, yeah, check it out. Um, we'll be releasing a story a day. Oh, that is just great. Okay. Now, I want to move on and talk about you're an adoptee, yes? Yes. Okay. And you're part of this network of politicized adoptees. And I've got to tell you, before um, I started, you know, researching your bio, I did not know that this organization exist, existed. So can you tell us what the network of politicized adoptees is all about? 
Yeah, the, so the Network of Revolutionized Adoptees it initially started as an informal group of adoptees, um, uh, of Korean adoptees, actually, uh, almost 10 years ago. And it was just, they were it was kind of similar to Cal. They were just looking for a place to come together, um, but not just to socialize, but also to think uh, more critically about how being an adoptee is a very unique and politicized experience. Um, and so they got together. Of course, they were eating lots of good food um, and reading and studying together. Um, and so that kind of grew into what the Network of Politicized Adoptees is today, which is really um, a way to support uh, and, and provide space for adoptees. Um, we are located here in Minnesota, um, so really working with the, the community here, and I think the pandemic and the world of Zoom has opened it up to uh, more national conversations as well. Um, and I'm happy to have joined the, the steering committee this past year, so I'm, I'm pretty new to the group. Okay. And and the, the thing that is interesting to me is you use the phrase politicized adoptees. Can, how, how does the phrase politicized come into play here with this? Sure. Well, I, I would argue, I could argue that every identity is a politicized identity. Um, but I think thinking about adoption in particular, uh, it, it is really informed, like the, the being adopted is, the whole system is really informed by a lot of um, larger systems, um, such as, you know, colonization and globalization. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm especially as a, a international and transracial adoptee, um, and so really thinking about what is that unique experience um, that we have. So I think often adoptees or Asian adoptees, for instance, I can speak for myself. Um, I I often feel kind of out of place in maybe other Asian uh, American spaces, uh, but I also don't totally fit into American spaces, and so. The Asian adoptee experience is very unique, I think, and and so um, that in itself, I think, is very very politicized. Okay. All right. I um, well, you know, and I I have two daughters that um, were born in Korea, um, one who does live here in the Twin Cities, uh, and um, it was um, it was a. Uh, for us, it was a, a very, of course, a special experience to be adoptive parents, but both girls were raised in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, which is, of course, mainly a, a, a community filled with white-color people. Um, and I have a very good idea of some of the challenges faced, but not all of them, because, you know, uh, my daughters don't necessarily share about every time they have something that relates to them as adoptees. So... Um, I I can say thank you for doing the work with that network. Yeah, thank you. So on on top of all of that, well, hold on. Let before we move off of the adoption thing. Um, sorry, and I don't mean to just call it a thing. That's not that was not mm-hmm. proper terminology on my part. Okay, before we move off uh, talking about adoption um, and international adoptions um, in, in particular. Um, you know, what are the politics around it as it relates today? There are, are there, am I right that there are fewer international adoptions going on in the United States right now? 
currently not aware of the exact numbers. Okay. But yes, I think um, I think generally there's more education happening thanks to you know groups like the Network of Politicized Adoptees and thanks to also a lot of adoptees who have gone through the experience and now are speaking up and um, you know looking out for yeah. for younger adoptees and um, encouraging adoptive parents to educate themselves before. Um, deciding to adopt and moving forward with that decision. So, um, yeah, so I think that there's generally more awareness around adoptees and adoptive issues. Um, And I personally feel really passionate about um, bringing the conversation back to centering adoptees and and their experiences. Um, So, yeah, that's that's also why I do a lot of my artwork, to, to highlight the adoptee voice. Well, one of the things that I was taught as an adoptive parent was the, the concept of grief and loss. And, um, and I can appreciate, you know, for any adoptee, there's, there's the, the, the grieving and the loss of, of um, not having the relationship with the birth parents. But it is no doubt doubly difficult being an international adoptee because on top of all that, you've lost, you know, your country of origin. Um, and, and I, I, I can just appreciate how difficult it is. And to the extent that you've had difficulties and, and challenges around it, um, I'm sorry about that. And, and I empathize with you. Yeah, thank you. So, uh, okay. All right. Well, on top of everything that we've already talked about, you are also, an artist and a comedian, right? Yes. (laughs) Okay. So, and you've got a one woman show out there, mother landed. Can you tell us about that? Yes, I'd love to. So mother landed is very near and dear to my heart. It's a one woman show that I wrote initially and and performed um, in 2016. And then I did a remount of it in 2019 at Dreamwood Arts Theater in St. Paul. Um, and this show is really, um, it's both my, my life story and it's also my love letter to other fellow adoptees. Um, and in it, I, I bring in, um, many vignettes, um, and I, I bring in kind of all of my different modes of artistry from, uh, you know, from theater to stand-up comedy to movement. Um, and so it, it really is kind of um, an opportunity to honor the women in my life um, who have helped raise me um, and, and to, to offer some space to both celebrate and critique adoption. Um, and so, I, yeah, I feel really honored that people were able to witness it um, and, and be with me in that journey. So, and you produced that show in October of 2019, but if people want to see the show, they can get a hold of you and you can connect them with a link. Do I have that right? Yes, yes. Okay. So, um, you can visit my website and learn more about my work at juliagay.com. That's J-U-L-I-A-G-A-Y.com. And then there's a contact me section, so you can send me a message and I can follow up with you. Um, I had a virtual screening actually last weekend of the show. Okay. All right. Well, that's exciting. Um, and, and Julia, so the question I have for you, I mean, the reason I really wanted to reach out to you because it was very clear to me that you were from our 
brief interaction that you are an idealist, that you are somebody interested in trying to make a difference in the world. And can I ask, you know, maybe you don't view yourself that way. Maybe you have a different, I've said that to people before and they're like, well, I'm not really an idealist. I'm a pragmatist. (laughs) I'm like, okay, well, you're, you're, you know, pragmatic idealist. Um, But (laughs) can you tell me why, why are you interested to make a difference in the world? What, what is it about you that caused that to happen? Hmm. Um, I think I, I am, I, I've not used the word idealist to describe myself before, but I think it's a very apt term. I, I think I see people and I want and believe the best in them. Um, and so I look at the world and I want and believe the best in the world. Um, and, and I also can really critically look at the world and see what is, what needs to change? Um, recognizing that right now the current the current way that we're living isn't sustainable, and the current systems that we're using are not equitable. So for me, um, yeah, I, I feel very passionate about about change. And and um, what would you in you know ten years from now? What would you like to be doing? That's a great question. Um, I know that it definitely means a lot and it's really important for me to eventually move from Minnesota and and go and spend some time in China. Uh. Um, I really want to study Mandarin um, and just live there for maybe a few years um, to really reconnect. And so that that feels really important sometime in the next 10 years. Um, Beyond that, I'm really open. I'm definitely a learner and a trier, and so I will probably keep on finding new things to learn and try. Would you ever consider political office? Oh, I have not seriously considered it yet, but um, potentially, you know, after I make that big trip to China, um, that would be one way to affect change for sure. Well, it would, and I just, I mean, you've got the background for it, and the willingness to be, you know, one uh, woman show, you know, to do that kind of production ha- instills, helps to instill confidence to be in front of, you know, audiences of people. So, mm-hmm. and to convey ideas. Well, yeah, listen, okay. okay, well, Julia, we've got to, we've got to go. Okay. I have enjoyed really greatly talking to you. Um, thanks for being on LE 2.0 Radio. Yeah, thank you so much, Ellie. It's been a pleasure. Okay. All right, listeners, um, we've been speaking to uh, Julia Gay. She's with the Coalition of Asian American Leaders. But on top of that, she is also, um, uh, she has a production where she's got a one-woman show, Mother Landed. You can find more about that by going to www.juliagay.com. When we come back from our break, I'm going to give you my C block. Thanks. Ellie 2.0 Radio, um, Julia Gay, 
I've got to tell you, and I, uh, I did apologize to her off the air, this is not a good day for me. I'm not having a really great day as, um, as you know, famous radio host. That's all um, tongue-in-cheek, by the way. And I apologize that I'm, kind of, that I'm putting you, my listeners, through it. Um, my quest- uh, questions are awkward. Um, nothing is flowing the way that I want it to. Um, and I apologize. I apologize to her. And, um, and she was very gracious about it. Um, I actually even gave her the option of canning the interview and she was, she was fine with the interview. So I'm very grateful for that. Um, and for her grace in understanding. So Julia, if you're hearing this, um, again, I just want to say thank you. Okay. And, um, listeners, we just, you know, um, we all have these days. Sometimes they're good. Sometimes they're bad. I'm still doing the show because, uh, well, first of all, I feel an obligation to do it. But secondly, you know, I think I've got a model that even if things aren't working right, you kind of plow through. That's important for all humans to understand, particularly for our younger people. All right. We've got my C block here. We don't have much time for it. I just want to talk about um, yesterday was tough. I had two trainings, uh, one for the city of Carlsbad. Uh, that I spoke about in the A block, as well as for a national medical provider, and and literally, they, uh, I, I, I was worried about the very first training, and, and I did not sleep well the night before. Um, so this is all kind of, and then once you're all juiced up and you've done the training, then it's hard to sleep the next night because you got all this stuff going through your brain. Um, so. So it's been tough, but I want to just talk about something that happened yesterday with both of those trainings, um, and both reinforce the power of two things. One is the power of storytelling, okay? Because um, uh, we are a society of storytellers and listeners. You've heard me say that, but the the truth is, you can you can teach people lessons way better with stories than with powerpoints. Okay, or with ordering, and that you know that um, I'm I, when I do my work. If you've ever been in any of my trainings, you know I tell stories. Uh, many times there's stories uh, about mistakes I've made in life or other things. Um, please, I'm not. I don't go for aggrandizement, but um, but yesterday reinforced that. And in fact, in the first training with the city, you know, somebody just said. This thing about telling stories is pretty powerful. The other thing was the power of human vulnerability. And it happened in both trainings where, you know, um, somebody was willing to go into the gray, going, go into a place where they were not comfortable and say things that otherwise they would not ordinarily share. This is like sharing from the heart, by the way, or admitting a mistake or something like that. And it you know what? It's darn contagious. Because when one person is vulnerable, other people are emboldened to be vulnerable. And I want you to kind of dwell on that. I mean, you know, I'm I'm an Iowan at heart, but I've been living in Minnesota for eleven years now, and so I've got some idea about the Minnesota experience. And Minnesotans, Minnesotans generally, we're not real good with um, speaking from our heart. 
and we're not we're really not good with vulnerability. But I've got to tell you, when it shows up, it is real, it is touching, and it is helpful. And as I will tell you, as a country, okay, as an as Americans, we got to be doing a whole lot more vulnerability. What part of the discussion yesterday at one of the trainings was about shame, and about how we carry shame tremendously, and that that shame can impact us for the rest of our lives. In fact, many of us may end up trying to unpack that shame for the rest of our lives. For example, I grew up in an alcoholic household. My father, high-functioning alcoholic, was able to hold a job, run a white-collar office, but boy, did that guy go missing. And this was before, you know, the day of cell phones, and we played Krug Roulette, Dad going to come home or not for dinner. There were many times, no phone call, no nothing. The guy just didn't show up until like um, midnight or two in the morning. I had great shame over that. I didn't tell my best friend in the world about that till I was out of college. So, something that I've carried. So we all have this, and when we're vulnerable and we share about it like what I just did, um, and I didn't do it for show, it, uh, it helps other people to know, to be willing to be vulnerable. And when we're vulnerable, we move, we change. We change the way we see the world. We change the way we see other people. And so, you know, Brene Brown, <laughs> go check her out. Brene, B-R-E-N-E, Brown. All you have to do is Google Brene Brown shame, Brene Brown vulnerability. You'll see some of the best videos, YouTube videos and talks, TED Talks that you could ever ask for. So, all right, well, that's my work. And that brings us to a close of what I would say is not the best radio Ellie Krug has ever done. Um, hopefully next week we're doing a little bit better <laughs> than what we are this week. Um, email me, though, at lejkrug at gmail.com if you'd like to comment on this show. I'd love to hear it. And a big thanks to my producer, Patrick, who is always doing math with me. He's doing a great job. And listeners, you go out and make a difference. Please, in one small way, make the world better this week. Thanks so very much. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye.